Okay, the Pious and Elaborate Treatise Concerning Prayer and the Answer of Prayer by John Brown of Lamfrey. We're up to chapter 11 of the Object of Worship and Prayer. Remember that the discussion, the whole discussion throughout the book is in light of John 14, 13, and 14. Whatsoever shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. <clears throat> the object of prayer, uh, we're going to discuss through the series of 12 points overall. We're going to look at the, the question of the address, really it's the address of prayer. To whom or to what are we praying? And we're going to be talking quite a bit about uh, the priority of the Father in a sense in prayer. And yet, <clears throat> Brown is very careful uh, to make clear and wants you to understand that although there are certain matters of order or protocol that we tend to observe in prayer, that we should not at any point think that, uh, for example, only the Father is worthy of prayer or we can only pray unto the Father. That's why Augustine prays to the Holy Spirit, right? Holy Spirit. Yeah, and there, and there are <coughs> there are times and places. There are certain um, prayers that are directed to certain people in particular, certain persons. Yeah, yeah in, in 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 the Trinity, uh, that may be more appropriate, right? If there's something that we know, for example, is more peculiar uh, to the work the distinct work of this or that person. Uh, but in, in we're talking about the general address, uh, for the most part, we're going to be talking about the general address of, of God. But again, remember, the, the chapter is the object of worship in prayer. <clears throat> and the object of worship, uh, regardless of the address that we're making, <clears throat> the object of worship has to be God. <clears throat> and when we talk about God, we're not talking about God abstractly considered, but we're talking about God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. God and Trinity and Trinity. Right. And, and so we, we have to keep that in mind. We have to uh, really have that at the forefront of our, our thinking in prayer, whether we're actually... Uh, praying ourselves or in the public prayers of the church or, uh, you know, when you're praying with someone else, you're sort of following them. Uh, you need to be clear in your mind that the object of all of this praying has to be uh, God again, in Trinity, right, in the Trinitarian relation. 
And so <clears throat> Brown's going to point that out. He's going to point that out in a number of ways. And um, he's, he's going to give us a number of verses to consider. And I think some of these <clears throat> verses um, are, are uh, not just interesting, but uh, instructive when we consider that in our praying we should pray using the examples and the, the um, patterns we find in scripture. We should conform our prayer to the revelation that we have. So we're going to begin <clears throat> with question 236. Uh, of whom does Christ speak in, in this prayer? <clears throat> and what's the end of Christ's answering prayer? So the person of whom he speaks in the prayer... Right, when he says, Which, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, uh, the person is clearly the Father. <clears throat> so the person to be prayed unto is God, but he's denominated here by the name of Father. And this has a lot to do, as we're going to see, with the fact that the Father is the first person. The Father is, uh, as the church fathers would call him, uh, the, the font uh, or the root of divinity. Right? That the uh, Son and the Spirit come forth from the Father uh, through an eternal begetting and eternal proceeding. Uh, nonetheless, the Father is unoriginate. And so, there's something <clears throat> there's something peculiarly appropriate in uh, making our normal address to God uh, by invoking the name of the Father. The end of Christ's answering prayer is also to this point. Uh, this is two thirty six B. And that is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So we, we know that uh, Christ prays to the Father, and he mentioned they're asking the Father in his name. We'll look at John um, 15, 16, and John 16, 24. John 15, verse 16. <clears throat> you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. John 16, 24. John 16, 24. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. Yeah, so the asking is... Uh, clearly asking the Father in the name of Jesus. That is, through the mediator. 
And, and that too is important and that actually is also part of, uh, when we talk about the object of prayer, part of what we have to keep in mind. Why we're not, when we address the Father in prayer, we're not addressing only the Father, but we're addressing the Father as He's the Father of the Son, and we're doing that uh, also with respect to the Spirit of God, who is, uh, in, in one sense, He's the Spirit proceeding from the Father, but He's also the Spirit of the Son in the economy of grace. <clears throat> so we are uh, we're praying with a, a bit of a sense of order, or generally we should be, okay. But that is not to say that we think that the Son or the Spirit are less God. So we pray to the Father, but we pray knowing that the the Father is given to the Son. To give to us the blessings by His Spirit, correct? Yeah, and, and we know that the end of that is the Father will be glorified. So that, again, it, it all returns to the Father, or the glory that He had with the Son. And we'll, we'll see that more as we expand upon the points that Brown is making here. <clears throat> but this is an important thing uh, to, to understand that um, there is an order, and we are, as I say, we'll come back to that and talk about that a little bit more uh, in this chapter. But that order um, shouldn't cause us to lose sight of the unity of the Godhead. In fact, the reason for praying to the Father, uh, in most cases, <clears throat> the reason for addressing the Father in this direct way is the Father is, in fact, the principle of the unity of, of the unity in the Godhead. All right, because of His priority and relation to the other two persons, <clears throat> He is the um, the unifying uh, point of reflection. So when we, when we say that our object of prayer is God, <clears throat> by mentioning God denominated as a father, we are praying to God under the consideration of this doctrine of the Trinity. All right, so he goes on to say that in order to clear up uh, this object of worship and prayer, the person who prayer is to be made... Uh, he wants to mention a few particulars. Um, and that is <clears throat> the subject of question 237. What reasons are given for asserting first that God alone is to be the object of our worship? And by, by God, again, we... Uh, we want to be clear that we are speaking about God in Trinity. But this God in Trinity is also a God in <clears throat> unity. And, and so uh, as the object of our divine worship, the divine nature 
which is the object of our worship, we contemplate in three persons. <coughs> so, the first reason, 27, uh, 237a, first reason given is, so God, God alone has the divine attributes and excellencies which are requisite in the object of divine worship, and um, he is really because of this. Uh, he alone is adorable. That is a proper subject of our adoration. All right. And he he really he points to. Um, uh, several verses, but the one I want to look at here is Psalm 95, uh, verses 1 and 2, and then also verses 6 and 7. Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. And verses 6 and 7. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice. Yeah, so, <clears throat> when, when um, the psalmist says he is the great God and the great King, he's above all gods and and so on. That from that, the point is, he infers that we should kneel before him. Um, and Brown points out, prayer is a natural, a piece of, of what we would call natural worship. <clears throat> and I would just add to that that worship is is a matter of declaring worthship the worthiness of something and really the only thing worthy of our adoration is the divine nature. Right? The, the divine attributes and excellencies alone therefore uh, contain that which is requisite for to be the object of divine worship. Right? To worship anything less than that is in fact to worship something less than God. Okay, so that's the first reason that God alone is to be the object of our worship. All right, 237b, the second reason, is God alone knows all of our wants, and God alone is privy to our hearts and inward motions and desires. And he points to uh, Acts one twenty four that God knows the heart of all men, uh, and Romans eight twenty seven that He searches the hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit, and so on. Right? Those verses are all getting to the same point. Right? Why are we praying? to God. Because again, God alone knows really what we want, uh, what we really desire. 
So he's not just, and this is why, <clears throat> although he doesn't bring it up here, but this is why we're not simply to pay lip service to God. Right? You can go through the motions. God knows whether or not it, it, you're, what you're saying with your lips or what you're assenting to outwardly, if that's what you really desire, that's what you really want. All right, 237C, the third reason. And this is also important. God alone is all-sufficient and able to answer all our prayers and satisfy all our desires. Any desire that we have... <clears throat> that is placed on something less than what is God is idolatry. Any desire that we have which is elevated to the object, which would be the only object of our adoration, God alone is able to fulfill. He alone meets the, the um, not only the criteria of our praise, but he has that ability both to answer the prayers that have been made to him as well as to satisfy the desires. And that's important. The desires. When we're talking about the desires, we're talking about uh, the, the um, heart conformity. We, we have to remember, again, that when we pray to God, <coughs> we have to pray in faith. And we have to pray with a desire to be heard. And that desire terminates rightfully only upon God. All right, uh, 237D, or the fourth reason. God alone is to be believed and confided in and rested upon. And he, he um, raises that question of the Apostle from Romans 10, 14. Right? How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? In other words, if you don't believe in God, <clears throat> if you don't uh, rest in him, there is no confidence, there is no ground for praying unto him. Or for praying at all, really. Any other kind of prayer is no more a prayer other than to the true God uh, is really, at best, uh, the expression of a more or less refined desire that... Um, that falls short of uh, falls short of um, engaging the divinity, right? So it's it's a more or less refined form of idolatry. Is what it really is. 
All right, the fifth reason, 237E. Um, he alone is our Father in Christ. Therefore, to call uh, to, to him only we can cry and call unto him, Abba, Father. <clears throat> Again, he refers to um, Paul's passages where he talks about are being brought into the adoption of sons, uh, heirs together with Christ, joint heirs, <clears throat> so that we can address God as our Father in Christ. And again, that that is not something which is proper to or possible with any Thing else other than God. Two thirty-seven F. The sixth reason uh, is that He alone is the hearer of prayer, and therefore to Him alone should all flesh come. I want to look at Psalm sixty-five, verse two. Psalm 65, verse 2. <clears throat> He's a hearer of our prayer. Psalm 65, verse 2. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Yeah, so, you know, we can, we can talk about why he alone is a hearer of prayer. Um, the short answer is, all of the gods of the heathen are idols. They're vanities. They're not. Uh, they're not really God, right? So, uh, they're they're demons, or they're uh, they're even less than that. A lot of times, right? They're just blocks of wood or pieces of stone. And they're not in a position to hear prayer, right? Because prayer, again, uh, prayer is an offering up of our desires to God, right? But our desires to God have to be godly desires. And those are not the kinds of, of things that are going to be uh, answered, let's say, by demons or uh, they, of course, you know, when we're talking about pieces of wood or, or blocks of stone or, or what have you, <clears throat> there's simply no possibility. They're inanimate. Uh, but we're dealing with the, the living God who made heaven and earth. And, you know, we can, we can discuss uh, the difference, if you will, uh, between belief and unbelief, uh, a lot of the difference is um, is one of perspective. You know, unbelievers uh, see everything as uh, happenstance, fortuitous, uh, or or uh, not. You know matter of luck or chance, what have you. Believers uh, are in a position to see things as demonstrating 
he, he uh, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, uh, that there is a, a disintelligence uh, that is standing behind the creation and engaged with the creation. And prayer is that point, and I've talked about this before, but prayer is that point where we're making um, we're making direct appeals. And so we stand in the best position to understand and interpret uh, providences as they fall out around us. And the more uh, you take into your prayers, the more intelligible uh, providence becomes, especially when you do this in light of the Word of God. <clears throat> All right, the seventh reason. This is 237G. Is he alone can pardon sins, which is a main matter of prayer. And he says that based on Micah 7.18. So we're going to look at Micah 7.18. Micah 7.18. Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. Yeah, it's, and it's not that God does not chastise his people, <clears throat> but he deals with his people in a very different manner than he does with those who are not his people. In fact, in this life, very often, his people um, will seem to suffer disproportionately uh, or find themselves disproportionately inconvenienced uh, or, or uh, made to feel um, the consequences of their, their sinful actions. Uh, that's, not, that's not a mistake. If there's a restitution that belongs to a wrong action, and unlike the reprobate who will spend eternity um, basically paying for their wages, uh, for believers, the account books in some respects uh, need to be settled in this life uh, when it comes to the kinds of things that we're talking about, you know, that demand some sort of restitution. That's why the, the Bible wants us to confess our sins. You know, if, if you uh, hide or cover your sins, you're not going to prosper in them. <clears throat> because it, it's not that you're going to get out from under it, but you're not going to evade it ultimately. Uh, but the fact is that um, uh, the consequences are of much less duration 
and much less severe when they're sort of faced head-on in this life. Um, as far as the guilt of sin and the condemnation that would, it, it would carry throughout eternity, of course that's been uh, taken away in Christ. But uh, there are there are consequences to our actions. Even though there's no longer the guilt of sin attached to them, there are still consequences. And so these things roll back and forth. Uh, but in prayer, our main concern, or at least one of our main concerns, ought to be <clears throat> to seek pardon, uh, to bring before God the things that we know are going to um, to ripple down providence uh, in such a way it's going to cause us a more immediate harm, uh, even though again it's been forgiven. So we we should seek pardon from from sin, uh, to be sure. And the Puritans were, were very clear about keeping a short account with God. And you don't want to, you don't want to let this go and go and go. Yeah. And that's the kind of position now be addressed mainly to the Father, correct? The yeah, well, for, the, for the most part, you're going to be addressing your prayers to the Father. Um, the most, uh, most prayers formally uh, are going to be addressed to the Father Again, because most prayers formally uh, are best taken up under the consideration of the Father's principle of, of this uh, unity of the Godhead. Um, now, that said, you know, he's going to emphasize in some of these coming points the Trinitarian concerns uh, that, that we when we are focused on God that we don't lose sight of in, in focusing on this principle of unity we don't lose sight of <clears throat> the uh, the other persons in the Trinity alright so moving on to the second thing noted about God is our object of prayer 238 This divine worship is one and of one kind. And so the object is supreme, and it's the worship must be supreme and competent only to the supremacy and infinite majesty of the true God. It can't be <clears throat> there can't be any other object. <clears throat> because there can't be any other worship. And I've already kind of alluded to this in what, I, what I've said, right, that we can't have any other point of, of uh, divergence from recognition of God as the supreme and proper object of our adoration. Right, because anything else, anything less than that, <clears throat> to um, <clears throat> to focus our desire and, and the desire to adore, uh, anything less than that is idolatry. 
239 then, the third thing noted about God is our object in prayer. Is he says, though God is one object of divine worship, essentially, yet he points out, and here's where we start to get into the Trinitarian considerations, uh, the scripture holds forth three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And with that, he really goes through a a short confession of the doctrine of the the Holy Trinity. And he says the Father is not uh, the Son, nor is he the Holy Ghost. Uh, The Son is not the Father, nor the Holy Ghost. Right? And the Holy Ghost isn't the Father or the Son. So they're distinguished by their personal peculiar properties. So the, the Son alone is begotten of the Father. The Father alone begat the Son. The Holy Ghost alone proceeds from the Father and through the Son. So Though we, again, though we're um, fixed upon one object of divine worship, the divinity that we call God, yet the unity of that Godhead, which shines forth to us. with a certain priority in the person of the Father. That unity should not be such that we lose sight of the fact that that divinity does not pertain alone to the Father, but that the same divinity is, uh, is, is distributed in the, 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 uh, the Son and the Spirit. So that brings us to the fourth thing, and that is getting to really drilling down on that point. Though these three persons are distinct as to their personal properties, um, yet all of them have the same infinite divine and indivisible essence, so that they're equal in power and glory and eternity. <clears throat> so I, again, I, I forget uh, which church father it was. Now um, it was um, probably Augustine, but it may have been one of the Cappadocian fathers. And sometimes it actually these kinds of things appear in, in several of the fathers when they're contemplating. Uh, things like the doctrine of the Trinity, but uh, what the early fathers said in in so many different ways is we should never 
contemplate the unity of the Godhead without allowing our minds to uh, to take up the three divine persons that are held uh, in that unity. And when our thoughts then devolve, if you will, to these three persons, uh, they must once again uh, rise to consider the, the unity that exists in these three persons. Right. So that we're never thinking of, of uh, the three persons as three uh, separate gods, though they're three distinct persons. We don't have three gods. We have one God, <clears throat> and this one God exists in three persons. And so that, that point of, of unity to which we return is the point to which we return when we're made to consider uh, that they, they do have the same infinite divinity, the same uh, indivisible essence, the same uh, power and glory and eternity. Like there are not three different powers or three different glories or three different eternities, but there's only one. <clears throat> so that the glory of the Father... <clears throat> Ultimately, it is the glory of the Son and the Spirit. The power of the Father is the power of the Son and the Spirit. The eternity of the Father is the eternity of the Son and the Spirit. There's one divine nature, one divine essence. But it's not as though this essence is ever abstracted. A lot of times you see pictures, people try to depict the Trinity and they have uh, like three different circles and then they have lines drawn between them. That tends to make people think of God in, in terms that I would say are tritheistic. There are other times when people, uh, in a sense, they, they try to, uh, they talk about the divinity abstract from Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Mm. <clears throat> and people, people tend to think of that divinity as almost like a separate person, but not really a person, because that would make four persons in the Trinity. But this, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are sort of dangling uh, off of this like ornaments. And that's wrong as well. The, the reason for returning to the Father as a principle of unity is, is really to remind ourselves that we, we're never thinking about God abstractly. <clears throat> when we think of God as a Father... <clears throat> necessarily we have to consider him as having a son. And 
and he has that son um, through an eternal procession, right? There's there's um, there's an eternal proceeding of that divinity to the son, and that eternal procession itself is a person, and so. Um, we, we shouldn't think of them as three ornaments, but they're, uh, in fact, three persons, which the early church called hypostases, uh, three understandings, three, three concrete expressions of this one divine nature. All right, let's move on to the fifth thing noted about God as our object in prayer, 241. We have two things to look at. For here, uh, the fifth thing noted about God as our object in prayer is that each of these three persons being essentially the one true and living God, <coughs> each are to be worshipped with divine worship and invocated by prayer. So that as the Father is to be prayed to, so is the Son and the Holy Ghost. And to make that clear, we want to look at some, some verses here. Uh, we'll look at Matthew 28, 19, Acts 7, 59, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and Revelation 1, 14. So Matthew 28, 19. Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> in Acts 7, 59. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Yeah, so his point is, you know, again, and I've we, I've already said this, um, but because each person is in fact God, uh, each one is worthy of the same praise, and therefore each one is also a proper object in our prayer. But if, if we ask, you know, why, how these three persons can each be a proper object, as it were, uh, the answer is, this is 241b, they're not three distinct objects of divine worship. There's one object of worship, right? There's only one object of worship present in the three persons. So we contemplate as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in yes. that order, correct? When you think of yeah, the Father, you think of the Son, the Spirit, and back to correct. the Father, Son, Spirit, and back. Yeah, but the same, they, they each partake of the same essential divine attributes, eternity, infiniteness, immensity, omnipotence, and so on. <clears throat> so that the deity, that is the Godhead, which is the object of our adoration in each of the three persons, is the same object of adoration. 
They're not three objects of adoration, but three different uh, things that we have in view. But you could say that there's three persons that we adore, correct? There are three persons that we adore, but it's one God that is being adored. And that's his point. Okay, so whether we're praying and we invocate the Father or the Son or the Spirit, ultimately he's saying, you know, we're not praying to three different gods. We're praying to the same God. We're praising the same divinity. All right, 242A and B. Uh, what's the sixth thing noted about God is our object of prayer, our object in prayer, and why? <clears throat> he says, in order to make this clear, whoever the persons of the Trinity is named in prayer, the same one God is prayed unto. The reason is that when all these three are mentioned, it's the same one deity that is worshipped. And, and what he says by way of explanation is this. We don't generally... <clears throat> um, We don't generally, in our prayers, that we may make mention of this, we don't generally make it a point of um, worship apart from the other two persons. So that is, the personal properties. Right? God, you know, to, to speak to the Father, you know, unoriginate. Um that's not to worship him as God alone. That's simply to recognize a distinction in his person from that of the Son or the Spirit. Right? Uh, and the same can be said of the Son and the Spirit. We're not, we're not worshiping the distinctions. Right? We're worshiping the deity in which these distinctions uh, are are um, subsist uh, subsisting. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Two forty three. The seventh thing noted about God as our object in prayer. is that Christ mediator is to be invocated uh, and he's to be invocated and prayed to because he is God. And we saw that in Acts 7.59 when Stephen is being stoned he calls upon God saying Lord Jesus. <clears throat> and in fact um very often when prayer is being made in the Old Testament uh, to the God who is with 
the patriarchs or the God who is with Israel. It's, it's really Christ who's in view. Uh, and so there are good and proper reasons for invocating Christ. Yeah. Speak, uh, a little off topic, but I remember reading somewhere that when, when the three angels met Abraham, some people, one commentator thought it was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in, in, in the human form. But is that, is that correct, or is that mainly just something that Christ himself does, and then the other two angels are just angels? Yeah, well, I think we know that the one is clearly Christ, and, and the other two, I think, are, are probably just angels. Uh, that said, I, I believe uh, Vitzius is one of those people who thinks that it's... Um, Each person assumes the, that. The three form. persons, and I, I forget. Uh, John Gill may have uh, similar views on that. So, uh, but I, I think in, in terms of what we know and or expect, if you know, it, it may be that that these angels um, are are meant to represent uh, the Trinity, but I'm not I'm not sure that that they would particularly answer to the other two persons of the Trinity. <clears throat> but he says that, you know, Christ has uh, the same divine essence with the Father, the same essential attributes of infiniteness and, and eternity, immensity, omnipotency, ubiquity, adorability, etc., etc., etc. Let's move on to the eighth reason the eighth thing I should say noted about God as our object in prayer and why 244 so the eighth thing noted about God as our object in prayer is that this invocating and worshipping of the son who is a mediator is not altered by our considering of him in our praying and approaching as a mediator or naming or mentioning him by titles agreeing to him only as mediator. And the reason why is that um, notwithstanding all these mediatorial titles, the fact is God is worshipped because the person of the mediator right, is the eternal Son of God. So we may, his point is, we may in praying uh, speak about Christ in terms that are peculiar to his mediatorial character and not proper to his essential character as he is God. And yet, because the person himself is God in this character the person that we're addressing he's saying is God could you give like an example of that yeah when we I, I would say uh, when we talk about uh, him redeeming us right he's doing that that's really his mediatorial character uh, but it's the son doing but it. it's the son doing that right so it's it is the div 
it is reflective of the divinity. In other words, it's the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus. Right? But um, it shines in a peculiar way. Uh, nonetheless, it's a way in which God has appointed to bring glory to himself. So we're not, you know, in doing this, his point is, in doing this, we're not traveling outside of, of what is allowed because in Christ, if you will, there is that condescension uh, where God speaks to man in a way he can comprehend. And when we speak back to him in the way that we can comprehend uh, with respect to Christ, he's saying ultimately our, our object, um, our object at least, again, you have to remember this is when properly conceived, our object is the eternal Son of God. Our object is not, because there's not a human person there, right? There's only the divine person. And we don't worship the human nature of Christ, correct? No, but we worship the person. We worship the divine person through his human nature, and that's appropriate. <clears throat> right? Because that's mediated. So he's saying this is, and he had, he actually has a, a, a relatively uh, lengthy discussion of this in the book. I mean, I, I say relatively, relative to some of the other discussions he's had. Uh, but he, he's, he points out, for example, his taking on of man's nature does not lessen his Godhead. Because even when man and the son uh, and the son of David, uh, he is at the same time the only begotten of the Father and equal to him in power and glory. Now, this is one of these things, and the early church fathers would tell you, these are the kinds of things you should sit around and just think about sometimes. Or just contemplate. Contemplate the doctrine of the person and deity of Christ. Contemplate the doctrine of the Trinity. Like don't don't try to do anything other than just think about it. You know, just think about, it. just sort of let it fill your mind. And isn't how at some, some of them how they experienced like the the beatific vision? Like uh, they, they, they there there were people who uh, had profound spiritual experiences. Simply from from meditating on that sort of thing, right? and, and you have to consider uh, when we see him, we're going to be like him, and we'll see him as he is. There's going to be there's going to be a vision at that last day when everything is changed right? there will be a vision we'll see him in a way that we've been unable to uh, but some of the fathers would say if you, if you meditate upon this uh, these kinds of doctrines you will get sort of a foretaste of that 
All right, let's move on to the ninth thing. Note about God is our object in prayer, 245. Ninth thing and the why. He, and this is, <clears throat> he's, he's going to nuance this a little bit more for us here. But he says the worshiping, this worshiping of the mediator with the same divine worship with which the fathers worshiped. He says it doesn't take away our making use of Christ as the way to the Father. He is, he is the one through whom alone we have access to the Father. And again, <clears throat> the reason he gives as, as the, the why <clears throat> is that his mediatory his mediatorial reign, his mediatorship, which is really his taking on of the office of mediator in order to make way for us to God, uh, that doesn't take away or diminish his Godhead. It doesn't make our contemplation, or shouldn't make our contemplation, in any way, lesser. So, for example, he says... Um, We pray then to the mediator who is God and is being God, and yet with all we approach to God through the mediator. And in explanation, he says, though the person is both God and the mediator, yet when we pray to him as God, we make use of him as mediator and as the way to God. So we come to God through God, the mediator. Through through him in the office of mediator, yeah. right, which is through his humanity, his assumed humanity. Because quite frankly, any time we talk about him being mediator, we're talking about him assuming our nature. <clears throat> right, so the idea that he is the mediator, he's the Christ, the Messiah already implies that he has taken upon himself our nature. Right? And, and that goes back to the whole, um, the whole discussion of, of that, that uh, gulf between God and man due to sin. And, and, and um, remember Job says, oh, that there was a, a kinsman, <clears throat> redeemer, Mediator, someone who could lay his hand on both parties. And the problem, of course, this estrangement between God and man, the problem is man is not in a position to reach out to God. Uh, God reaches out to man 
by entering into his nature and and making that way right? Re, uh, reopening the way to God so we're this gets to it's a different question but you know ultimately you, you'll see this in some Puritan works of theology uh, they'll talk about the fact that ultimately there are really just two men Adam and Christ, and everyone is hanging on the coattails of one or the other. Okay, we're either in old Adam or we're in the new Adam, Christ. You know, we're we're in one or the other, ultimately. And and that's when you when you are regenerate, when you're born again, uh, you are moved positionally. There's there's a, a principle of life implanted. Uh, so that, you know, there's an old nature and a new nature uh, now struggling within you. People who are in old Adam, uh, they just have the old nature and that's, that's been cut off from God, so it's just dying. Uh, people who have been born again have an old nature, which is dying, which is why we still die. Uh, and the body is sown in hope. But there's also a new nature. And that that is growing and reaching out to God and that new nature will eventually on judgment day it will it will be the um, medium through which our bodies will be transformed right? so that in, in a sense uh, God is turning man inside out to recreate him <clears throat> All right, let's move on to the tenth, the tenth thing noted here about God as our object in prayer. And why? 2.46 A and B. Uh, there's an order subsisting among the three persons of the deity among themselves and an order of operation in their works without and as to us. And he says that order is the Father is the first person the Son's the second person, the Holy Ghost the third person. So that though the object of worship is the same deity common to all, it doesn't hinder, but we may in our approaching to this one God in three persons, uh, that we may have suitable apprehensions of this order in their substance and operation. <clears throat> and the reason he says this is, <clears throat> in, in taking this into account, we may direct our prayers, this is the why, we may direct our prayers first to the Father, as being first in order, not excluding the Son or the Holy Ghost, but taking them in also in their, in their order. Not conceiving the Father to be chief in honor and dignity above the other two, seeing that they're all equal as to essence and so on. <clears throat> and um, he, he points out that the Father is frequently mentioned before the Son. That there, is, there, there tends to be an order, they're named, they tend to be named in order, he points to the um, 
the Great Commission, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But he also points to 1 John 5, 7, um, 3, to bear witness, the Father, the Word, and the, the Spirit. Um, and that, that language. And then he points to a number of other verses where the Father is mentioned before the Spirit. And we can look at a few of them. First uh, Corinthians one three. Second Corinthians one three. Galatians one three. It gives a bunch more, but we'll just look at those three. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. What was the next one? 2 Corinthians 1, 3. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Galatians 1, 3. Galatians 1, 3. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, but he points out that... It, Though that's usually the case, it's not always the case. So, for example, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Second Corinthians 13, 14. We're going we're gonna to be looking, get ready for 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, and Revelation 1, 4 and 5. Yeah, so there we see that Christ and then the Father, uh, there's, a, there's a different order. And then these other two verses that I just mentioned, uh, the Spirit is named before the Son in 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6, and Revelation 1, 4-5. Corinthians 12, verses 4-6. Now there are, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which works all in all. Revelation 1, 4, and 5. Revelation 1, 4, and 5. John, the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Yeah, and, and I think um, <clears throat> there's actually been a little bit of uh, thought that uh, some people have put into this. There are uh, almost certainly theological reasons for, uh, in, in particular, uh, when these are in a different order than we uh, than we would assume Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, um, there is something to that theologically. Um, nonetheless, what it suggests to us is this: while it is uh, the norm, I would say, to invocate God uh, under the name of Father. Uh, there are occasions and there are reasons for preferring to make mention of either Christ or the Holy Spirit um, in 
in the invocating prayer. <clears throat> All right, and and again, he's he's saying <clears throat> what this tells us is uh, the the ordering is not one of honor or dignity, or as if there's some sort of inequality, so that one person would be less worthy of our worship. We need to guard against thinking like that. And I know it probably feels like we've we've talked about that throughout this entire chapter. The reason is he wants you to contemplate uh, this doctrine of the Trinity with respect to prayer. Because when we talk about God, we can't simply talk about God. <clears throat> there is no... God is not one person. God is three persons. And yet there's only one God. It's a, a lot of people are confused about that. God is not one person. When we talk about one person being God, we're usually talking about the Father. But that's not to exclude the other two persons who are also God. But there may be people who do that. <clears throat> In fact, I suspect that there are a lot more people today who do that because of a lot of confusion in the churches. They don't really uh, consider that. But John Brown wants you to think about that. He doesn't want to keep you from the doctrine of the Trinity. He wants you to start uh, recognizing some of the practical implications of, of believing in the Trinity. All right, what's the 11th thing noted about God as our object in prayer? 247. <clears throat> he says, as worshiping or praying to the mediator, the second person in the Trinity, uh, as to the Father, does not hinder or make use of faith, faith of Christ's mediation in approaching to God, nor does our worshiping of the Holy Ghost, the third person, hinder us from making use of the Spirit in our approaching God. So let's look at a couple of verses here uh, just to help make this point. Ephesians 2.18 For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. <clears throat> that is through this, yeah, we have access uh, by one Spirit to the Father, through Christ. And according as the blessings bestowed on us of the Father come to us through Christ and by the Spirit. Look at Ephesians 3.16. Ephesians 3, verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Right. So again, <clears throat> just as... Uh, Making use of Christ as a mediator does not hinder us from worshiping him as God. Making use of the Spirit 
giving us access uh, does not hinder us either. Uh, notice in both cases, by the way, we're, we're made aware of distinctions of persons uh, primarily through their economy. We know that there are distinctions in persons because of what Scripture says, but these distinctions are uh, known to us uh, more practically uh, through the activity uh, that surrounds the economy of grace. Now let's move to the last thing, the twelfth thing noted about God is our object in prayer. Why? Two forty-eight. A and B. <clears throat> the person prayed to here and elsewhere, particularly in the pattern taught by our Lord, uh, the Lord's Prayer, is styled Father. But as for the why, he says, This is not, should not be understood as if the Father alone were the only object of divine worship. And, and he says the reason is that the Father here is to be understood um, more so essentially than personally. And um, that's <clears throat> that's what should be the, the again the contemplation of the three persons should move us to the unity of the Godhead, but that movement, that mental movement to the unity of the Godhead should at at the time that we move to think upon that, it should return our thoughts to the three persons. So his point here um, I think is is well taken, but I also think um, it it could be liable to be misunderstood. But he's not he, he's not saying that we're not praying to the Father. He's saying that we're adoring the the unity of essence in the Father, really. And from what we've gone through in this chapter, the implication is that we're going to move from that back to a subsequent uh, contemplation of God or in Trinity. All right, so <clears throat> this chapter, as I mentioned, uh, this chapter is a chapter that is concerned with making use of the Trinity in our praying um, in order that we might have better apprehensions of the divinity uh, with 
which we have to do. Uh, that, that is, that divine nature is what we are uh, lavishing with adoration. It's not to say that we shouldn't uh, love God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We, we know him personally in and through the th- these three persons. These divine qualities, the divine nature, they're not mere abstractions. Okay, but they're also... Um, they're, they're not um, uh, something that we're adoring apart from these three persons. But we need to understand that it is as these three persons participate in this divinity. That's precisely what makes them adorable and worthy of our worship. So next time, uh, chapter 12, we're going to look at mistakes in mind that need to be guarded against when we pray. That will be our topic next time.